You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Intraoperative mapping helps neurosurgeons maximize the excision of brain tumors while minimizing any neurologic damage. How is this procedure accomplished and which patients may be appropriate candidates? Joining us to discuss awake craniotomy and mapping techniques for brain tumor surgery is Dr. Donald O'Rourke, Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania Neurologic Institute and the Abramson Cancer Center at Penn Medicine. Thanks for being with us, Dr. O'Rourke. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. Well, can you tell us a little bit about awake craniotomy and how the procedure is actually done? Awake craniotomy started to be used first by epilepsy neurosurgeons, and many of the techniques, nearly all of them that we use in tumor surgery, were developed first with epilepsy patients. And the important thing with epilepsy surgery is to remove the focus of the brain that's causing the seizure. Mm-hmm. And many times those foci of abnormality were very close to eloquent brain. We, we use the term eloquent to describe particularly important areas such as language and memory in the brain. Not that any area in the brain is <laughs> not eloquent, right. but that's the term that's become more widely accepted uh-huh. for proximity to language. And so epilepsy surgeons began to do intraoperative mapping where they would use electrical stimulation techniques to define the abnormal areas of seizure activity and then resect them and use awake techniques because oftentimes the areas to be removed were very close to language, and obviously we want to minimize deficits. So in a similar way, the people who do a lot of tumor surgery at the larger academic centers began to use these techniques. What we focused on here at Penn is to develop this program. It requires a lot of collaborative help. In the end, it's a procedure that allows us to do, as you said, maximize the surgical resection of primary brain tumors and some metastatic brain tumors while minimizing the neurological risks and deficits. That's fascinating. And the patient is awake. How is anesthesia handled as you're entering, going through the skull? It's a collaborative effort here. This is done in combination with specialized uh, neuroanesthesia colleagues. So the entire anesthetic technique for doing an awake procedure is completely different from general anesthesia. Obviously, there are no inhalational agents. One does not put a tube down and hook someone up to a ventilator and provide gas, the procedure has to be done in a completely different way. And it has to be done in such a way so that we're able to literally wake the patient up from sort of a sleep state in order to test their language function. What this typically requires is intravenous techniques as well as blocking techniques. So the anesthesia group here at Penn has become very proficient in providing nerve blocks, which are injections locally to the affected region of the scalp that we're going to make an incision on. And that, in combination with a variety of intravenous techniques, has allowed us to perform this procedure. Literally, patients will sleep through the opening of the skull, and then the medication is dialed down, and patients are not completely wide awake, but they become sufficiently awake and alert to interact with us. And it's at that point during what I would refer to as sort of a critical 30-minute window where there's a dialogue between a third group in the operating room, which is neurophysiology, and those neurologists are proficient in assessing language function while we are directly applying stimulation to the brain. There's been a recent advance in some of those intravenous agents used by anesthesia 
that allows us to do this procedure in a much safer way. That, I think, has been a very significant development to the program. Very good. It's just something that you can turn on and off more efficiently and and with less risk to the patient? Yes. It's a way to really titrate the level of anesthesia intravenously in a much more successful way so patients can be sedated and then rather quickly this minimal anesthesia can be turned off. So you can go from sort of this awake state to a relatively deep state of anesthesia very quickly by just simply dialing this medication. And this is done by the anesthesia staff here at Penn. While the neurophysiologists get prepared to do the language function, and then you might ask, what are the neurosurgeons doing during this time? Mm-hmm. We're utilizing image-guided MRI techniques to localize the tumor while we then begin to test uh, the regions around the tumor. And the testing itself, are you applying electrical stimuli in, in Broca's area and Wernicke's? Or? Exactly. That's exactly right. So we apply small levels of current to the surrounding brain, we'll begin to map out the tumor first, which is utilized by MRI interoperative techniques that would be the subject of another discussion. But to suffice it to say that the advances in MRI imaging have also been hugely responsible for being able to do some of the surgeries we do at the present time. So the first move that we do when the brain is exposed is to identify the tumor through MRI landmarks. And then we would begin the mapping part of the procedure, which typically, as I said a bit earlier, would last about 30 minutes. Now, we don't have sort of a never-ending timetable in order to do this. We've Mm -hmm. noticed that in some of our patients, particularly the elderly patients, they do get a bit agitated during the latter part of the mapping part of the procedure because they have to be confined, they can't move, they're under drapes, they feel claustrophobic. So we do want to limit the timing of the mapping. So Mm -hmm. we do our best preoperatively to localize language by utilizing what's called a functional MRI. So the day before surgery, we'll do an MRI scan while the patient is talking or intends to talk, and that will allow us to localize language function by increased blood flow. And I'll use that preoperative functional MRI study to tailor the regions of the brain that I'll map in the operating room. And based on that study, we'll begin to directly stimulate the cortex of the brain adjacent to and just overlying the tumor with varying degrees of current, which is a little bit different in each patient. And the goal is to actually interrupt function, typically speech, in order to localize it. If we can disrupt it and we know exactly where we've stimulated, we know exactly where the language is located. So that is our goal. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me discussing awake craniotomy is Dr. Donald O'Rourke, Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania Neurologic Institute and the Abramson Cancer Center at Penn Medicine. Dr. O'Rourke, when it comes down to it, how much different is the resection with this technique versus doing it without? Are we talking at the microscopic level, or are there more substantial differences in what's removed? I think that's an excellent question, and I think it gets to one of the two major issues for doing this procedure. We have two goals in neurosurgery when we're dealing with tumor surgery. We want to maximize the amount of tumor removed and we want to maximize that removal while minimizing the neurological risks. Awake craniotomy allows both of these goals to be achieved. 
Mm-hmm. We're able to, in combination with the MRI techniques I alluded to, maximize the amount of tumor removed while having a confidence that a patient is not going to wake up with a significant speech deficit. And the reason for that is because we can localize language properly when someone is awake and able to converse and interact with us. If we don't have that level of safety, which we don't under general anesthesia, then you could imagine that a surgeon such as myself would not be as aggressive in removing as much tumor as possible. We've been particularly surprised by the variability in certain patients in language. There are certain landmarks that are typically referred to as areas of the brain that one cannot remove based on their proximity to language, but it's a fascinating situation where the presence of a tumor tends to modify where certain language functions are held. And we've been surprised in the amount of tumors and the extent of the tumor removals we've been able to get by doing this technique. One would never a priori think you could remove 90 to 95 percent of a tumor in certain locations. Well, it often turns out that when you're in the operating room and you actually do the language mapping, you can safely remove much more tumor than you would expect prior to doing this procedure. So overall, we've been very pleased with our results, and I think the increased removal and the reduced risk to language is a combination that ultimately really benefits the patient. Absolutely. We're talking about eloquent brain in terms of speech and understanding. Is there any application for this, say, with occipital tumors and vision or other parts of the brain? That's an excellent question, too. We have not gotten to the point where we've utilized it for that application. There are centers which do awake craniotomies for motor mapping and testing movement, but we've been able to develop some direct cortical stimulation techniques which are utilized under general anesthesia for tumors that are close to motor cortex. So our primary application for awake surgery at Penn is language mapping, but we do have an effort underway for testing this in other areas, and the one that you mentioned would be a logical application. So, Dr. O'Rourke, for motor function, you can just stimulate the various parts of the brain and watch for muscle contraction, so you wouldn't really need the patient to be awake. Right. I think the techniques have evolved to the point where we can do it safely under general anesthesia, and utilizing the threshold for stimulation, we can actually determine where the primary motor cortex is and where the what's called supplementary or association motor cortex is. And overall, that provides us a great functional correlate to some of the high-resolution MRI anatomy uh, images that we have available to us in the operating room. And having that functional complement to the anatomy is a great tool for any neurosurgeon who wants to maximize the resection while minimizing the neurological risk. We've talked about other areas in the brain. Are there other central nervous system conditions that might possibly be helped by this, uh, I don't know, if AV malformations or movement disorders, or is that really not something that would be helped by this awake craniotomy technique? I think certain vascular lesions that you mentioned, the AVM being one of them, are definitely amenable to awake surgery, and, and actually we've done some of that, although AVMs are rather rare lesions in general, so they're not seen with the prevalence that tumors are. In terms of motor diseases that you mentioned, typically those techniques are done by direct stimulation by implanted electrodes that are implanted stereotactically with defined anatomic coordinates that most of the time do not require the patient to be awake and interact. Certain situations, that's useful. 
and that's not something that's my area of expertise. We do have other faculty at Penn who are uh, focused in that area. From the patient's perspective, is there any difference in post-operative course, what they remember? Are there certain preoperative personality characteristics that make one more or less suitable for this? That's a great question. And I, I think my response to that is, yes, there are differences. I alluded to one of them earlier. The older patients tend to get a little bit more agitated and uh, have a difficult time with the claustrophobia that they may feel in the operating room. The younger patients are much more compliant and able to tolerate this procedure. It's not something for everyone. That's true. On the other hand, some of the older patients have really surprised us, and they've been absolutely fantastic candidates for this. In the post-operative setting, I think it's a dramatically better way to do anesthesia, and the recovery is therefore much faster. With general anesthesia, as everyone knows, there's, there's a period of time during which that anesthetic has to be cleared and people can be sick. And this technique, however, patients are nearly completely alert after the procedure. Their recovery time is very much facilitated. We haven't looked into this in a more rigorous scientific way, but I think the length of stay in the hospital and the postoperative recovery would certainly be better in a patient undergoing intravenous and blocking techniques than traditional general anesthesia. And no issues thus far with post-traumatic stress? Do they remember the OR experience? The agents that are used by anesthesia are amnestic, so people have very little recall of what actually occurred in the operating room, which is good because, as I said, it's not a pleasant thing to do, but it's my firm belief that it has been a major advance over the years, and we're in the process of refining and improving what our predecessors did. So, you know, I think... We have a great advantage of having technology available to us that the original pioneers of this work did not. I very much want to thank my guests uh, from Penn Medicine, Dr. Donald O'Rourke. Dr. O'Rourke has been discussing with us awake craniotomy and how this technique enables neurosurgeons to resect more tumor tissue while preserving more healthy tissue. He emphasized that it is a collaborative approach requiring the latest in technology, along with cooperation of anesthesiologists, neurophysiologists, and neurosurgeons. Keep this in mind for your patients who may unfortunately have brain tumors, that this is a major step forward that we may want to have our patients take advantage of. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.